Welcome to Hashing It Out, a podcast where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. We dive into the weeds to get at why and how people build this technology and the problems they face along the way. Come listen and learn from the best in the business so you can join their ranks. All right, everyone. Welcome to Hashing It Out, a new type of Hashing It Out. We're doing uh, panels now. This is the first ever panel where we try and discuss, we bring a bunch of people together and discuss certain topics and have experts within that topic share knowledge and uh, come together on a lot of things. This one in particular is going to be used for trying to introduce people to the idea of where F2.0 is, how it works, and what they can expect uh, as a developer. So what type of tools they'll use, what they need, what they want, um, how they view things, what they don't understand, et cetera. Try and ask as many questions as that and serve as a primer for the DEF CON 5 breakout session that will be doing a lot of the same things. So if you're going to that, highly recommend listening to this. We'll be broadcasting it out. Um, I will be moderating this and uh, Jay will also be uh, help, help moderate this. She works for QuantStamp. Jay, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah, uh, so I am longtime community person, uh, communications person for QuantStamp, and I'm really happy to be on this um, this podcast. And just so we're clear, for the remainder of this podcast, I will be referring to it as Serenity. I will die on this hill. <laughs> uh, it, it is not ETH2 to me. I've been waiting since Olympic. I mean, I know there's still a long way to go, but it is Serenity to me. Serenity now. All right, great. Jay, why don't you go ahead and um, introduce everyone on the panel and then they can say hi so that we can attach voices to them. Yeah, so on the panel with us today, uh, we have uh, Yapsik uh, Sieka, and I hope I'm saying that right. Um, yep, got it well. Hi everyone, that's me. We have Will uh, Villanueva. Yeah, that's me, Will Villanueva or Will Villanueva. Um, works. <laughs> and we also have uh, Xiaowei uh, Rong. Hello, nice to uh, be here. Thank you, everyone. Of course, Preston Van Loon. Hey. And Paul Horner. Hello, everyone. Thanks for listening. Okay. Um, yeah, so I guess we should just kind of get right into it. Um, you know, given the the enormity of this, this upgrade and the importance of it, and also how much happens in this space and how little time people tend to have, um, you know, maybe it would be a really good time if uh, if someone would like to volunteer and try to explain maybe a a good mental model. Um, to help visualize this transition from, um, you know, I guess, uh, ETH1 to Serenity, ETH2. Um, and analogies are very welcome in this case. Since no one wants to offer it up, I will choose someone randomly. Yatsik, why don't you go ahead and go? Give it a shot. What's your analogy for uh, the transition from F1 to F2? 
All right, so let's see now. That's actually a good question. Um, I started of thinking of this as, as a little bit like this, that you come and you build this model car or you build a very simple car, like might even be with your kids that you buy, a little, that you build a little toy. Um, and then you start thinking like, but what if I built it for real? And, and you build your first version of that. And that may be that first real car you built, that was Ethereum 1. And then, then you start thinking about it and you start changing every single little piece in it. And that's where you end up with S2, but now you also added wings to it and a couple of jet engines and, and, and maybe you can do like space flight with it. Um, because over the course of the years, like you've picked up a few thoughts about like what you want to change and you start thinking small, right? But then, you know, you pick one idea from here and one idea from there and suddenly you've got this new consensus mechanism and you got a new execution engine idea and then you think like, yeah, maybe we could fly as well, you know, not just try. Um, so that would really be my analogy for ETH too. It's sort of like from a hobby project to something that, that takes all the pieces in that project and, and remakes them, remolds them and, 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 and makes them, well, some of them more powerful, some of them different, just different. Um, Maybe you could dive into just a little bit, um, you know, sort of the initial mechanisms, um, you know, because the I think a lot of people and a lot of our listeners, they have a fairly good understanding of, you know, how, just how the, the Ethereum blockchain works, you know, at a high level. I mean, this is a substantial change in, in multiple parts, but what that looks like is, is probably quite unclear to a lot of people. Um, especially say non-developers or even developers who really haven't had a time to look at it. Yeah, so like like the objective of Ethereum 2 in many ways is the same as that of Ethereum 1, right? You want, uh, you want to create a consensus chain. You want to create this institution that lends you trust to your operations. And, and it's just that the means to do so is, is completely different in, in Ethereum well, in serenity, shall we call it, right? So, so we so we started <laughs> with, with forming blocks, right? That's that's what all the blockchains do, and then we need to decide on which which ones are the good ones. And in serenity, we use proof of stake. In Ethereum one, we used proof of work, right? And then you think about the networking protocol, like we're forming a network of uh, computers that do this computation together. Um, in Ethereum 1, there was a custom uh, protocol used for that. In Ethereum 2, we're using libp2p, which is sort of the same idea, but, but on steroids. Um, for execution in Ethereum 1, it was like, a, you know, like a single threaded computer. And now suddenly we're going to have a thousand computers working in parallel on the same, um, on the same things through sharding. So like every single piece that you would associate with it, classical Ethereum one chain. We're solving the same problem, but just in a different way and with new capabilities as well. Um, so I, like in an ideal world, um, developers won't notice the difference for what, they, what they've been doing until today. And then they gain like new superpowers that they can uh, use. 
So that would be sort of the objective, I think, of Ethereum to that, that like do what you can do today, but also give these new superpowers, which might involve stuff like zero knowledge proofs and um, maybe a UTXO model that you want to do, or, or, or sort of adapt your solution to, um, to these new capabilities so that you're more efficient. Might be many of those things. Paul, uh, you're also a implementer uh, doing Lighthouse uh, for F3.0. Do you have anything to add to that or even a completely new perspective? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I liked uh, Yatik's uh, example there of, of building another car. Something I kind of thought about when he was talking about that was something I really noticed with F2 is uh, it's a lot more general uh, than F1. I remember when F1 launched back in 2015 or came out, I was like, wow, you know, this is, it's so general. You can program anything on it. Um, and now with F2, um, this is kind of new approach with execution engines. Um, things are becoming even more general. Um, so in a way, you kind of like you're building this new big car, um, and this this new car can even you can even sort of sit your old car on top of it too. Um, so I think that's that's really um, interesting about F2. Um, I think the the transition process for me um, is a bit like. It's an interesting one because we have these two components. So we have the, the F1, which is our production chain. Sorry. We have the F1 chain, which is our production chain now. Uh, and then we have the the F2, which we're building beside it. So F1 keeps doing its thing. We build F2. We keep we keep working on it. We, we make it stable. Um, and then eventually we get it to this point where uh, it's able to perform the same duties as the F1 contract. Um, and then we can even take that one next one step further. Not only can it do what F1 can do, it actually gets F1 inside it. Uh, and then they all sort of chug along happily together. Would you be able to talk a little bit about sort of the consensus mechanism differences, um, maybe from a, again, from a, this sort of mental model um, standpoint, because, because it is, it is quite different. Yeah, absolutely. So the most basic, um, the most basic difference is that um, Ethereum one uses proof of work and Ethereum two uses proof of stake. Um, so proof of work um, is this kind of uh, big sort of hyper permissionless um, consensus mechanism. It's kind of a rate limiting mechanism, but we'll call it a consensus mechanism. Um, and it's it's very simple. Um, you know, it's you, you try to guess the you try to guess the problem. If you solve the problem, you win it. Um, and it all it kind of scales. Um, I, I don't know if it scales neatly, but it scales in a way that's easy to imagine in your head. Proof of work is just like you know, it's a big race. The more people that come into it, the harder it gets. So the more people, like it just it basically stays the same. Everything gets bigger. The blocks come out at the same time, um, and it's quite easy to get your head around. Whereas proof of stake um, is completely different. So. As you probably know, proof of work uh, uses a lot of energy, whether that's waste or not, is up to your opinion. In my opinion, it is, but you know, we won't go there. Um, proof of stake um, is, uh, it's also permissionless, but it has this idea of who the actual validators are in the system. So in F2, uh, each validator, so they're kind of analogous to a, a, a miner, um, each one of them needs to be onboarded. We need to, to know who they are, know their key and, 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 and bring them into the system. Uh, and then once they're in, they're allowed to play and then they can get kicked out by the, the protocol if they misbehave. Um, so 
the great thing about proof of stake is that it has some very interesting security properties. Proof of work doesn't. One of the most interesting, I think, is that if you have proof of work attack, is the, the classic attack is the 51 attack. That's I control, you know, half more than half the computing power, so I can just kind of choose which which chain, and I can reorganize the chain and cause havoc. Um, and I can kind of do that for as long as someone doesn't, you know, physically attack my miners or they um, or they choose to change the protocol. Um, whereas proof of stake has this thing where because you actually know who the validators are, we can we can go off chain and we can do this social consensus where we get together. And if we if if someone manages to control um, an unwieldy portion of the stake um, in a social consensus, we can go and and choose to evict them. Um, so we don't need to have to do these like huge overarching overarching protocol changes. Um, so there's some of the benefits of proof of stake, in my opinion. Um, some of the the downsides, I think, is complexity. So the managing like an and like f hash the like managing a hashing algorithm a proof of work chain managing the validator set is easy because everyone just sorts themselves out you just let them um where in f2 we have a lot of complicated logic where we need to keep track of the validators and make sure they'll get rewarded and you know, the other implementers can can probably share my pain in, in how complex this is um so that that is a downside i mean i say it's complex but it's it's not unachievably complex but that's definitely one of the downsides to it all right, so I think that gives us a um, very light, broad, high-level overview of some of the differences of the transition from F1 to F2 and what we expect. But um, this panel is mostly about the developer experience and what developers should care about. And a good portion of that architecture in terms of how F2 uh, pieces fit together is a bit removed from what developers should actually care about. Preston, can you speak on, like... Um, what, what do you think developers should know in terms of uh, their interaction with F2 and building on top of it? Uh, yeah, so F2 is a totally different um, paradigm in terms of like how things are organized. Uh, instead of having just one uh, blockchain that we're all sort of interacting with, we actually will have multiple. So we'll have Ethereum blockchains running in parallel um, and so when you're thinking about uh, how deployments are going to happen and things like that, these communications between the different blockchains are uh, some slight overhead that we get for, uh, as a trade-off for having this you know, parallel processing of multiple blockchains running at the same time. Um, so as a developer, as someone who's deploying smart contracts, this is something that... Uh, you want to fundamentally understand because it, it, it affects how you might co-locate your deployments or your contracts. So you might put them on the same uh, shard, which is what we'll, we refer to as these parallel blockchains. Um, so yeah, having that fundamental understanding of how E2 works is going to help, help you know, in the long term understand how your deployments and things uh, can be optimal in the long run. I could, I can kind of continue on that thread um, as well. So um, from one perspective as a developer, um, you know, uh, Preston put it really well. So you kind of want to be aware of the shard space and um, there's some decision there as far as co-locating basically all the functions of your application or contracts um, in the same shard, um, but there's the case where in, in many, you know, in many 
places where you might have a degree of scalability where um, a contract that you operate might be living on multiple shards as an example. Um, and so when you start thinking about this paradigm, you can kind of break it down into a, I guess development um, becomes more, um, more in, in, in similar to thinking about multiple threads that are running. Um, so in this case, when you're writing your contract and, um, and, and building the different pieces that you need, uh, you need to be open to the fact that you may have some asynchronous calls that are a part of your system. Um, and so a lot of this will actually develop itself um, with the tooling that's in place. So example, with various HLLs, if we look at you know, Solidity as an example right now, um, we may have some tooling that would need to be introduced to introduce basic concepts around you know, how, do you, how do you deal with asynchronous programming within a smart contract. Um, and there's a lot of ways that you can organize that. You can, you can follow a basic async model. You can follow um, you know, a uh, actor-based model, which is largely a message-driven approach. Um, I think the spot, the thought space is quite open, um, and there's there's a lot of different ways you can do it. Um, and depending on on the need of your application, um, whether you need atomicity um, in in some of your calls um, or whether you don't, will kind of impact the way that you may design your system as a whole. Um, however, what what I would say is a lot of this tooling should already be there for, for developers um, within the contract languages that they, they choose to operate in. I like this comparison um, that you made in terms of uh, thinking that in terms of multi-thread versus not. Um, I think that really helps uh, to for developers to, to think about it. Because you, know, you look at what is sort of presented and it, it is you know at this point still a little bit um unclear um but that's still a few years out no so as as far as timeline goes i i can actually speak a little to this um i wouldn't you know commit to any date as far as you know when production pieces come out and i you know don't want to speak for the implementing teams and particular, I'm, I'm, you know, more working towards research right now. Um, but something that we've, we've been working on specifically our team, uh, and our team is Quilt, uh, is we've been building a basically a simulation. Um, and we can kind of call it, you know, a, a simple test net. Um, and what what this is essentially doing is it's, um, it's running a, a very basic phase one, phase two system is, is what we say. So um, it's running a very basic, you know, multiple multi-sharded system. And um, sorry, what, sorry to click by phase yeah. one, phase two, are, are you referring to the, the plan that has been loosely laid out? Yes, yes. So um, in general, the development cycle of ETH2 is, is broken up into these various phases. Um, so phase one is when, you know, the shards, um, each of the independent shards are, um, you know, largely operating and, and, um, and find stability. Um, and you can upload data to those shards. Phase two brings state execution into that. 
Um, so it kind of, you can imagine that kind of bringing the shards to life, right? And so this is where, um, once you have state execution, this is where you begin talking about these questions about, um, you know, how you, how you might interact across multiple shards. Um, and so this, you know, to tie everything back together, this is the, um, this is the perspective you take as, as a developer that, you know, you can, you can consider analogous to, um, you know, writing a program uh, that may interact with multiple threads. Um, so from our front, what we've been doing is we've been building a basic, um, a basic simulation of this system. Um, it's, you know, not, not geared towards um, being production level, um, but it's, it's geared more towards research level. And so um, we're already, you know, sort of operating and simulating uh, multiple shards interacting with, uh, within the system. And so the, the goal of this is that um, people can, and, and developers, and specifically this uh, would be researchers, can begin, um, begin already experimenting with different ways to organize cross-shard um, calls and build models around this. And so we're already experimenting with this. We're already tooling with this. Um, but as, as far as once, once these questions actually become applicable, this will be when uh, phase two ships. And there's a, yeah, uh, there, there's a very interesting way to look at this uh, threading thing, I think. Um, because what, what will happen basically is that execution and the threads will uh, keep moving forwards. And then in the middle, we have this arbiter, the, the, the beacon chain, coordinating uh, the security of all the shards. And what's Paul was talking a little bit earlier about uh, some of the security differences. And this is one very practical way that I think the way we look at blockchain security will change a little bit. In proof of work, basically you go back and you agree that like, all right, with three confirmations, I feel safe enough, or maybe with six confirmations or whatever it might be that you use it as your security threshold. But in this new sharded model, um, we have a couple of interesting inflection point, shall we say. Like, first of all, we have the shards, they form um, an opinion on, on what their own current state is. And then it gets transferred into the beacon chain by the validators, by cross-linking. So in the beacon chain, basically, in this secure heartbeat of, of, of Ethereum 2, we record that, all right, this shard has come this far along in, in, its, uh, in its blockchain space. Um, and that, that forms like a first, maybe a validation that people agree on where, where this particular shard should be. And then people start voting on, on that particular uh, state. And we reach something called justification. And this might be another inflection point and finally finalization. And what's really interesting about finalization from a client implementer point of view is that it's kind of like an agreed upon deterministic point where we can discard all possible forks, um, which lends us in one way complexity for managing all these votes and so on, but also kind of simplicity because instead of having this forest of, of alternatives to consider and maybe like a deep chain reorg uh, that we have to um, 
take into account when we when we design the database, for example. We can now suddenly live in an append-only world up until that point. Um, could you maybe talk a little bit uh, further about sort of um, cross-shard communications? Um, because there's there's a, we're still starting off with just the beacon chain out of the gate. And then that's in, being introduced later. And there's there's a, even when you dive into some of the documentation that's pretty high level, it's still, it's, uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of unclarity there. And I think for someone who's um, maybe not a, a developer, um, what that means is potentially not clear. And I, and I think that might help um, developers um, when they actually go in and, and, and look at this uh, uh, and, and explore it more at DevCon. Sorry, Jay. Um, are you wanting a little more clarity on the beacon chain or how, or just, I guess, more clarity um, on the cross-shard transaction space and understanding how that fits into the beacon chain? Um, happy, happy to go in either direction. The, the, the latter. Yeah, I'd also prefer the latter. I think that's something that, um... Uh, from a developer perspective is one of the most important things that they need to worry about um, and, and understand and grasp intuitively. Okay, cool. Um, and Xiaowei, definitely feel free to, you know, add, add to this as well. And I know your, um, your head's been uh, in this as well. Um, so you can, I guess you can break out this thought space in a, in a few different models or approaches. Um, so ultimately what you have, and Yasek kind of talked about this, is um, the beacon chain kind of, you know, acts as this coordinating layer um, between all the shards. And um, basically, if I'm on shard four and I need to accept a message from shard five, so let's say we have a um, message-driven format to interact with um, across different threads, as an example. So let's use this as an example. Um, I can I can trust the message that comes from shard four. Um, if I'm on shard three, um, once shard four has had its justification on the beacon chain. Um, so basically, once enough uh, validators have acknowledged the current, I guess, state and view into shard shard four, um, they voted on it and it's been uh, what we call cross-linked or you can consider it a checkpoint into the beacon chain. Um, we know that now at this point that shard um, you know, should, should not roll back, right? So it, it, it should be in a stable place. Um, and more or less without going into you know, a, a lot of deeper details, you can kind of make, make that assumption. And so once you know that shard three can now, um, you know, fully trust um, a message that came from shard four, um, that that would have that would have presented itself before that crosslink or checkpoint. Um, so that's that's one way um, you could do that, and that message can be passed through what we call um, a, a proof or a witness. So if you have a receipt that's printed on on shard 
four as an example, um, you just show a proof or witness on shard three that that receipt was there and that that receipt rolls into um, what's been uh, stated as the, the final final view or state of that, um, that other shard. Um, then there's, there's another approach. You can uh, follow more of a, uh, a locking mechanism. So um, this is where, you know, in, if you're dealing with um, uh, programming across various threads, um, you, may, you may lock um, some type of object or, um, or something that you're, that you're accessing and that you may pass around from shard to shard. Um, and this in large part follows more of what, what we may refer to as this yanking model. Um, so maybe for, for an example, if you have some type of um, contract that um, you, know, you, you need to kind of lock its operation until another contract has also been called, um, then this yanking model kind of falls into this locking mechanism. I'm, I'm happy to talk about that a little bit more. I don't know how much detail we want to go into that. I could give um, some analogy there. Um, but before I do that, let me just like take, you know, a little one more step back um, as well. So there's kind of what we just described is the thought space of how you might deal with cross-shard transactions within the core protocol, right? And this is, um, you know, kind of waiting for this finality, waiting for this justification. Um, so then there's, there's a few other thought spaces that, that um, kind of are present as well. Um, there's been some uh, really interesting posts and um, you know, some, some collaboration on this as well. Um, so um, there's this whole thought of um, building systems where you, know, you, can, you can basically um, use your shards as, as this data availability layer and you can build um, clients on this system as a whole that will then go ahead and um, basically uh, execute um, on that data off chain. And so this is more of a layer two model. Um, and again, you know, without going into a lot of detail, um, what, what you can do is this kind of falls into this hybrid layer two, layer one approach. Um, but you can actually, in, in some of these models, um, accomplish what um, you know, could even be seen as synchronous uh, cross shard transactions. And so there's there's a lot of thought in in this area as well, um, but does uh, does include uh, some additional complexities. And so you, you can kind of look at the thought space as there's the asynchronous um, approach, and then there's the synchronous approach across various shards. Um, and so uh, within the synchronous approach, um, a lot actually wouldn't change from the developer um, experience. So the developer in this in this case. Uh, can continue to build contracts that, like they would on ETH1, assuming calls into other contracts are synchronous. Um, the, uh, but there is um, additional overhead in, in, some of, um, in some of these models. But in the, the most simplistic method would be the, the asynchronous models. Um, so okay, like, I, think, I think that provides a lot of clarity. Um, I think I'm going to move it forward a little bit. Uh, Xiao Wei, um, you had done a little bit of a survey. Um, I'm wondering, could you maybe kind of talk about sort of what exists, what's needed, what we can expect soon, um, and maybe where some of the needs are based on that survey, um, just in terms of where we're at, of, uh, in terms of tooling and, and development. 
Hi. Um, so happy to talk about it. So the survey was about uh, was for the Ethereum community, especially the uh, the application developers. There, uh, we collect the feedback from the community about the Ethereum 2.0, the roadmap, and also what's the main challenges in their mind that they are facing with in East one and also expected to be important in East two as well. So uh, we collect the, the feedback and so far we got uh, 75 responses yet. And the, the survey will be closing soon. So if you are hearing it and you'd like to let to share your opinions from the, the survey and please go ahead to submit it. And so far we got um, some great feedback, including that what's the main change and what's the main requirement in the perspective of the developers. Uh, for example, like we can see that the user experience is still the most important um, challenge for the developers. That's not only in is one and if if we want to bring us like as good as um as good as is one uh, developer experience to is two that that probably not good enough i mean i mean um for me the Ethereum 2.0 is we were facing the challenge um, more seriously than the other blockchain projects that we have to deal with the backward compatibility problem. Like, like for the other blockchain that layer can create a whole new um, system without less problems. So for us, like we're in the Ethereum 2.0 chain that we are trying to to implement some very um, interesting but and basic abstract functions in Ethereum 2.0. There's are uh, some proposals that uh, might be might be realized in the phase two or maybe phase one. Like uh, for example, like the abstract uh, abstract abstract account that's one of this and also like the storage rent or, or maybe we call that the storage fee and also oh, that the most important one is the state engine abstract the extrusion environment that i don't know maybe will my mention that later like so that's how we abstract the state engine so now we only have the EVM uh, in the East one. And in the future, we might have Iwasan or other brand new state engine. Those are very exciting to see that the developer can choose between all the different uh, state engines based on the application they want to build with. So basically, 
I think Ethereum 2.0 bring us a, a challenge and also a chance to make it right this time. Yeah. Thank you. I really like that that answer in terms of um, what options are available for F2.0 that maybe don't exist in F1.0, but that also like with options come complexity and a lot of um, decisions that need to be made by application developers to make things that are that give you the user experience uh, that may compete with the I guess convenience of F2 of uh, Web 2.0, right? Um, and a part of that, what makes that possible is is tooling. And I think that's what a lot of people really care about, or at least developers care about, is the tools that are going to be available um, to them to more easily or facilitate them using all of these options that F2.0 will have uh, to make um, better applications easier and faster and safer and more secure. Uh, and there's a few and there's a few things that I'd like to dive into here um, with respect to that. One is what of tooling currently there's a tremendous amount of tooling available for F1.0. What percentage of that do you think we'll be able to reuse or slightly adapt to be useful for F2.0? Or we're going to have to rebuild it all from scratch. We should be able to use the same tooling. So, um, for example, um, you know, all the, all the work that's been done with solidity, um, and everything else that that shouldn't drastically change. Um, I, I think, you know, we find a lot of success if we can continue to use, um, the same tooling and instead adapt it and then improve on it and introduce some new tooling in general. So, um, this, this kind of falls into what, what I was mentioning before is, um, you should be able to write contracts the way that you would today. Um, but now you, you have, um, extra capabilities, um, that are, that are added on and Yasek sort of talked to this as well. Um, and this would be models of making, you know, a asynchronous calls and, and various things as well. What will change is uh, the Web3, the lower level libraries like Web3.js and things like this. Um, F2 has quite a different data model to F1 uh, in, in just the way that its blocks are shaped and how they link together and all sort of stuff. And we have shards. So I think that's going to be one of the spaces where we do see a lot of change. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see what people come up with, um, how to be able to easily uh, take an application that uses, you know, like the JavaScript Web3 stuff to, to talk to a node and then port that over so it works to F2. That's that's the biggest change for tooling I can think. Preston, did you have some thoughts? Uh, no, I don't have anything really to add. That's Paul said it well. Thanks. What do we have now in terms of F2.0 specific stuff that people can get their hands on? Danny Ryan puts it well, saying that uh, validators are the first users of F2. Um, so the implement the implementation now is very focused on phase zero. So phase zero means um, just the beacon chain, so that core coordinating chain, um, and 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 the validators doing the proof of stake. So it's kind of like the the most complex new bit at, at the middle there. Um, so. What we're building now is a, is effectively a test net or like a a pre net um, 
where all you can do is just stake uh, and, and grow the chain. And what you'll be agreeing on is this, just that all the shards equal zero, um, but it's the, it's the process of agreeing that we want to test. Um, so in terms of tooling now, um, there's not a unified um, set of tools. Um, implementations are still experimenting um, because the data model is so different. Um, we don't need to retain um, backwards compatibility for Web3. We can experiment with, with different APIs um, and a lot of the teams are doing that, um, which is great. So if people wanted to play, my suggestion would be, would be to go find one of the teams that have a test net, you know, like Prism and Nimbus um, have, have public ones. We've got one coming and there, there will be a, a multi-client one coming soon. My, my advice to them would be to, to go um, and start up a local test net uh, and get some validators on it and, and get it to finalize chains. Um, so just just at this stage, just getting the exposure um, to how the like how there's different components and how they talk and that oh it actually works. I think that's where the real value for developers is at the moment. Um, and but trying to hunt around for um, you know like a uniform consistent API that they can use to write an app with, I, I don't think is ready for that yet. The closest the closest thing to that um, is right now. There's a repository called Scout, um, which is basically a, a simple playground for um, this concept of execution environments or scripting that will be within ETH2. Um, so we're already playing with that. We already have um, token transfers um, that are operating in some basic, some basic degree of uh, contracts um, as well in Wasm that we're interacting with. Um, you know, and, and we also even have uh, some, some basic beginnings of the EVM on Wasm in that as well. Um, so I guess another area to just stay involved as a developer, if you're curious where, um, where the wave of everything will go is to follow, um, follow the work um, that we've been building around, around Scout and, and seeing how that develops and um, the different things that are being built there. Yeah, and I think that actually attention around those things will start ramping up um, dramatically, actually, as we as we get closer to launching the phase zero mainnet. I think a lot of the teams that are doing the clients right now, at least, are very focused on, on, on getting the basics right, like getting the networking right, getting the consensus right, getting the security right. And the tooling, like Paul mentions, will perhaps need to be that needs to be developed will be focused on those areas and perhaps not so much on, on contract developer stuff. But if you look at phase one, phase two, where the contracts do come in, I think we'll see a ramp up in interest and in exploration of all these options that, that are on the table today. And then perhaps also mm, reining in a little bit this wide net of that we've thrown and sort of collecting the most valuable ones and providing like a path forward as well. So in terms of, yeah, things happening after phase zero launches, this will be very interesting to see like which, which parts do we find valuable in the end? Which ones do we perhaps shut down because they prove to be mm, ideas that maybe wouldn't work so well in practice and so on. So you mentioned something there that uh, sparked my interest. And I think the interest of many people is uh, tooling focus and ideas around security. Um, 
And that is like what's being done now or what's being planned for to help provide more confidence in the security and stability of the things that we're building and the ideas that we're that we're that we're expanding on with F two point oh. Uh what 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 can you what can you provide the the audience and developer applications that what they're going to be using will work as intended and not have severe consequences later on? So I think from a very practical perspective, if you want to be running a validator client, um, if you if you have a mining rig, you need to provide for electricity. You need to be you know connected to the internet. And but but if all that shuts down, all all you have is opportunity cost, right? Uh, in proof of stake, instead you start losing your stake if you're not online. Um, so if you're planning to become a validator, from a security perspective. You have to consider perhaps your networking setup. Do you need some kind of high availability network? Do you want to run multiple clients that back each other up? Um, this is going to be very interesting to explore as we as we launch this in practice. I would like some more detail on um, are there plans for audits for different milestones? Who's going to pay for those audits? Um, things like that, because like. It, Funding in this is a very interesting thing. And more often than not, that funding typically goes to trying to get things out the door so that we can have a, a, a phase zero mainnet. But um, I, I personally would like to have some more reassurance that some of that budget is being set aside to make sure that it's it's being reviewed by third parties or other other people with, with the eye of security and, and pen testing. And I'd like to add that so far it seems um, pretty unclear as to that as a as a plan. Um, yeah, so about the audit, uh, Center Foundation has been working on that to uh, commute with some companies like uh, Runtime Verification. They've been help us to audit the deposit contract and also the the uh, I think it's the core logic of the Casper FFG. And for also there are things that they are interested in uh, implement the current beacon spec into KVN uh, model. And by that, they can use the K language to verify, to do the uh, formal verification of the current beacon chain spec, which we are planning to launch. And there are some other audit I think it's working, is going on is to found the proper uh, audit companies to help to audit the client computations as well. So yeah, I mean, certain foundation, we have budget to, uh, that was, uh, allocated to do the audit, but things are working on slowly, but yes, it's. I can also add personally, um, as, a, yeah. as someone who works from status, um, and, 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 and as, as a security engineer, we are having some endeavors or initiatives to try and fuzz Nimbus. And I know that other clients are doing the same type of thing. So I, I know that there's been talks there and work towards trying to do a general 
security testing um, to make sure that like there's no unhappy paths uh, within the clients or try and find those things as quick as possible and set those frameworks up and share them. So there is other things going on that is, is like, I guess, project um, specific that we plan on sharing to help other projects do the same thing. Yeah, that's totally right. Um, Shao was mentioning there the protocol level security stuff, which is really important, making sure that the specification itself is sound, because uh, that's what we all build off. Um, and like you said, Corey, there's been some fuzzing works going. We've been fuzzing for a while, actually, um, and it's been really successful for us. We've been finding um, problems in our code. We've been finding problems in upstream code. Um, and there, there has been an effort um, over the past few months to do um, cross-client fuzzing, so differential fuzzing like they do for F1. Um, so there is a, um, a, a fuzzing rig set up that can uh, fuzz a few different clients. I can't remember which ones. Um, and we're working on that quite heavily now. We have at least one full-time resource on it at the moment, um, just working to try and link it in um, to, different, to different clients and just basically producing blocks to them and then seeing whether they panic, seeing if they agree on the same thing on um, this type of testing. Um, we're also looking at audits and uh, we, we've put out an RFP. Um, if anyone security minded is listening and you run a security firm, um, please check out the RFP. And judging from Yatsik and uh, Preston's interest, they, they sounds like they're going to be doing um, something very similar soon too. Um, and just to back up what Wei said, um, uh, my, my indication from the EF and from, from the other people in the community that are doing funding is that um, security is very important to them. Um, it's very important to me. Um, so I'm, I'm quite confident that, that we're going to see proper audits and we're going to see good fuzzing, good security testing. I mean, I, I, I won't say it's safe because nothing's safe, um, but it'll be well tested. It's more confidence around what we're doing. Uh, just to chime in for, for, you know, what Prismatic Labs is doing is we're, yeah, like Paul said, and yes, you said, we're, we're fuzzing and also looking for security audits. Um, we have a pretty good well-rounded testing infrastructure so far and, and, and coverage over all of our code. But of course, like the, it doesn't have handle of the unknown in inputs. So uh, fuzzing is going to be real big for us. And we've just been starting working on that. And that's a big, big push for us for Q4 is to have uh, fuzz testing over all of the, you know, major external uh, inputs coming in. So Awesome. Yeah, I would also add to that that there's like this funny implicit um, fuzzing going on in the form of all these client teams working together and then connecting to each other and, and sort of stressing each other's application in different ways that were perhaps un unanticipated. Uh, so we had this meetup in, in, in Canada where, where practically everybody got together and tried to connect and, and so on. And what fell out of there was really that there are small little differences in implementation and, and when you sit down and do that uh, that's almost like an audit it's it's not an audit where somebody's explicitly sits and, and and looks at your code but it's a verification that you've interpreted the specification in the same way and that you can come to the same answer and that in and of itself uh, lends uh, some form of stability to the process as well and then the assumption would be that should the net should, should should a single client fail, we can still fall back on the other clients uh, that hopefully haven't made a similar mistake in their in their code. Um, so, in terms of all of this that has been built out or is getting built out, how much of it has or is expected to be um, formally verified? 
I think, uh, yeah, sure. F from this, the specification perspective, I'm pretty sure that the the um, deposit contract is going to have um, a pretty solid degree of formal, formal verification to it. Um, I know the spec, people are keen to do it on the spec. I think Xiaowei mentioned it before. Um, from a client perspective, it becomes very difficult um, to find bits of the code that you can um, formally verify. So one of the biggest risks for us is the, is the network stack. Um, and you can't really formally verify a network stack because it's just chaos in there. Um, so they're the bits that we can't do. Um, I think we might see um, some clients doing uh, validator logic um, formal verification. For instance, like the one of the things that the validator client being a piece of software that implementations write that does the signing and, and make sure that a validator never produces two slashable messages. This is what I mean by the validator client. Um, this is a good target. There's some, some lower level logic in there um, that we could formally verify um, to, to prove it. Uh, and perhaps some of the state transition stuff, but I, I think that some of the largest attack vectors we'll see in client implementations probably won't get formal verification because it's just simply too hard. Uh, and where we'll see the formal verification is just in these like kind of sweet, really well-defined um, pure state machine bits. Awesome. Um, yeah, I'm looking, I'm looking forward to a lot of this stuff. What can, what can, I guess, the community expect within the next 10 months? Uh, public beacon chain testnet, I would say. Um, obviously, I'm not committing to anything here, and this is just my opinion, and I'm not the, the oracle. Um, I would expect to see a public beacon chain testnet. Um, we would expect to see, I would definitely expect to see um, multi-client testnets, um, like long-lived ones, like equivalent of like a Rinkeby or whatever. Um, like a, a, a testnets with actual stake on them, I think we'll see in 10 months. Um, and I think we'll start to see um, much more work in terms of shards and execution. Um, this is what I'm most excited about actually is seeing the stuff that Will um, is working on, Will and, and lots of other people um, in how are we going to write smart contracts and how are we going to execute that. I think that's going to be the most interesting space for me. Yeah, so I think, you know, from our end 10 months from now, um, we should have a pretty strong um, or solid simulation um, of multiple uh, multiple shards running and, and developers being able to interact with the execution environments that are going to be um, a part of um, ETH2. ETH um, so what we might see, we might see, um, you know, a, a early version, non-production version of, um, of ETH1 ETH um, operating within an execution environment that you can interact with and um, will, you know, mimic multiple shards that um uh that you can that you can communicate with and operate with um you'll you'll see a lot of various um i guess alternative frameworks to eth1 on eth2 so there's some other account models that we're uh, experimenting with that you should be able to uh interact with and and write some some basic contracts for as well um you'll see um more sophisticated um, transfers frameworks, token transfer frameworks. Um, we're also working right now, and, and actually at DevCon, uh, we're going to do. There's there's a few presentations we're doing on all of this. So if you know people are interested in going a little bit deeper on the pending work, um, please do come to those sessions. Um, but also we um, we've been uh, developing um, 
ZK, ZK rollup frameworks within ETH2 as well that uh, developers should also be able to interact with. Um, so there's, there's a lot um, of people working on this right now, and there's a lot coming to life. Um, and so by all means, um, it, it wouldn't be at production level, but we should have a pretty good picture of um, early contracts that developers may already interact with, um, crush our transactions, and um, a, a lot of the um, yeah phase two work that's that's being um, that's in process. Thank you. Um, there's a, I guess, just as a sort of a little bit last thing to mention. Um, there's a lot of unclarity around sort of the timelines for staking. Um, I guess, when can we expect to maybe start that process? Um, is it that in the next 10 months? And then beyond that, um, you know, there's some uh, issue around needing to have your node with 100% uptime um, and maybe uh, an unknown timeline. Are there any, say, concerns around that? I think, uh, I don't think we've been thinking about it in terms of timelines. Uh, perhaps, a, shall we say, healthier approach might be to look at it in terms of readiness. So we've been talking about what, what it would take in order to launch, well, first of all, the staking itself, but then as, as well, like a healthy uh, mainnet. And and to get there, like there there are these criteria that we need to fulfill. And what like obviously the deposit contract needs to be there and 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 be stable and audited and safe and so on. And then we need to look at clients. Like what what are clients uh, doing? Are they communicating well? Have they had a stable testnet for a couple of uh, weeks, months, whatever the criteria happens to be? Have they been audited? Are we satisfied with the number of clients we have? Are we satisfied with their quality? Are we satisfied with the validator user experience? For example, it's, are, are we satisfied that keys are being managed properly? Do we, have we answered the question of high availability setups? Is that an important question to answer? And I think this would be very good to hear from, from the community as well. Like what are, what would be your criteria for launching the beacon chain, for example, like what would what would you consider to be necessary criteria before you would launch into staking on the Ethereum two uh, network and and actually de facto run the software? Like what what are what are, what are the expectations here? I personally think that's a great way to um, wrap this episode up in terms of asking an open question to the audience of. Uh, what do you, what are your expectations and what are your demands and what do you think should be done um, in terms of having a safe and, and uh, main net launch for doing these types of things? Uh, for those that are going to DEF CON, I definitely implore you to join the breakout session. That will be an extension of a lot of this type of conversation. Um, maybe pull ideas from the conversation here to ask better questions. I will be... Um, adding the survey that Xiaowei has performed to the, the show notes of this. So please fill that out to give her better uh, information on, on what developers want, expect, and desire uh, for, from, the, from, the, from the F2 implementers as well, especially around tooling, because as we know, people can't build things without, without tools 
Um, not everyone can be an expert in everything. So we have to abstract away a little bit. I'd like to thank everybody for, for joining me in, in, this, in this panel. Um, Jay, for helping me moderate it and all the great conversation that's come from here. I look forward to um, what you all say during the panel and what comes from that and rolling out a successful F2.0. This has been very nice. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Um, and I hope to do it again. And yeah, I, I really hope to hear that this, this panel um, and this breakout session goes uh, quite well. Really looking forward to seeing Serenity uh, exceed. <laughs> Cheers, guys. Thanks, all. Thank you. Once you, once you have, once you have to type Serenity so many times, you start to want to fall back to F two. <laughs> never. That's the never, only way. Not, not gonna happen. I'm, I was I Vitalik's talk last year. I was like, you know, burn F two. I'm Serenity all the way. Changed all that docs, um, and then and then I I fell back. So you're on the hill by yourself. I'm sorry. I wasn't brave enough. <laughs> That's totally fine. I'm on the communications team, so I can deal with the, the follow-up from that one. Uh, I'm not brave enough. All right, guys. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. Go ahead, Joseph. Thanks, Corey and Jay. Thanks all. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Have a good one. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.